What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. And welcome to our first of many bonus episodes. Hope you enjoyed our uh, unique intro music, different from what we usually do, because uh, we are doing a second episode every week throughout the course of October to celebrate spooky season. Yeah, we are. Are you excited about that, babe? I'm so excited. I am. I know that this has been like a dream for you to uh, do two episodes throughout this season and uh, feel like, you know, we're really indulging people in, in enjoying the month of Halloween. So yeah, this is fun for you. This is fun for me. And I have a feeling this is fun for a lot of listeners. So I hope so. I hope everybody enjoys it. Yeah. Well, first off, what are you drinking? I am drinking some crisp room temperature water. Wow. Yep. Room temperature agua. Yep. Sure am. What about you? Well, I am drinking. If uh, you, you don't remember from a previous episode, the mentioning of the smallest Dr. Pepper on the planet, I am drinking yet another can of the smallest can of Dr. Pepper on the planet. The return of the tiny Dr. Pepper. Yes. And we were out of ice. So I literally <laughs> scraped just like the, the smallest bits of ice crystals <laughs> from the little bin from, from the little bin in our freezer so that it wasn't room temperature. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. You're doing it right. Doing, you know, I do what I can. You're doing it right. Well, in in the spirit, in the spirit of Halloween, we're not going to do a feel good fact because the feel goodery of uh, the bonus episodes is that it's related to the spooky season, right? I mean, the fact that they exist Mm -hmm. is supposed to hopefully make you feel good, like put you in the right spirits for floating around on Halloween in your best ghosty costume mm-hmm. while you're watching all of your favorite Halloween movies, you know? Right. right. So that was kind of my thought. I yeah. mean, this is our first time doing a bonus episode that's like for a purpose. And so I'm, I'm totally open to like feedback and suggestions if people have certain like spooky topics. I, I already have a few episodes ready to go, some bonus content ready, but... I can throw together another something if mm. any listeners are just itching for a certain topic to be covered. So, yeah. yeah. Scratch that itch right now. Why don't you take us into it, my, my love? I'm going to take you into it. Okay, so today we're just going to jump right in. We're going to learn about some of my favorite stories about cursed objects. Ooh, cursed objects. Yes, indeed. So cozy up in your sweater, 
grab yourself your favorite fall beverage or tiny Dr. Pepper, turn down the lights and get ready, because this one is a doozy. Hey, so I think we start off by defining some terms. So to start digging into cursed objects, I bought a book called Cursed Objects, Strange But True Stories of the World's Most Infamous Items by J.W. Ocker. Very good. Yeah. I really like the way that he defines cursed objects. He says, quote, a cursed object is an object that gathers stories to itself, or more specifically, tragedies, end quote. Hmm. He also writes, quote, in lore, it's an inanimate item that brings misfortune, harm, or death to its owners, or those with whom it comes in contact, end quote. Hmm. So I feel like those quotes both sum up the types of items that I started looking into. It leaves rooms for objects that have all different kinds of stories, different origins and methods of becoming cursed and so on. So there are apparently a ton of items throughout histories with bizarre stories attached to them. While preparing for this episode, I had a time trying to narrow down (laughs) what to cover and how best to cover it. So I decided that for my first time covering something like this, I'd shoot for some variety. Mm. If people end up liking this and want us to make it a somewhat regular installation on the show, they can let us know in the Instagram post. So, all right, let's jump in. We're going to start out strong by talking about Black Aggie. Ooh, Black Aggie. I feel like there's no way to say Black Aggie and sound cool. Yeah, it, it kind of does not roll off the tongue great. Black Aggie. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I just like had a syrupy yeah. bite of something, but Okay. <laughs> Black Aggie is an infamous statue that used to find her home at the Druid Ridge Cemetery in Pikesville, Maryland. Upon first glance at Black Aggie, you'll see a woman shrouded in layers of cloth, sitting down with one hand raised to rest beneath her chin. Her eyes are closed, and she appears to be sorrowful. She's been called many things, from mysterious to melancholy to flat-out creepy, but it's the stories surrounding the statue that are truly spooky. So before we can talk about Black Aggie herself, we have to talk about why people believe that she's cursed. In December of 1885, a woman named Marion Clover Adams, a socialite and one of the first portrait photographers, was found dead in her home near Lafayette Square across from the White House. While Adams is a common enough name, Marion had married into the Adams family, not da-da-da-da Adams family. (laughs) But, you know, the one, the Adams family that's responsible for two of our presidents here in the United States. Oh, that Adams family. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Different Adams family. <laughs> I mean, yeah. kind of, da 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 A little, as in, a, in a different way. They're kind of. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so Marion's husband, Henry Adams, was the grandson of John Quincy Adams and the great-grandson of John Adams. Wow. So it was discovered that Marion had drank potassium cyanide, which was a chemical that she had used to develop her photographs. There's some dispute about why she had decided to kill herself. Hmm. Some speculated that she was in extreme grief over the passing of her father, while others believed that it was an impulse decision. But regardless, nobody agrees or knows for sure why she did it. Wow. Henry, in his grief, commissioned a world-renowned sculptor named Augustus St. Godin, I think is how it's pronounced, Hmm. to create a special statue to serve as a graveside memorial for his beloved wife of over a decade. It reportedly took somewhere around four years to complete, and after it was finished, it was named Grief, and it was also referred to as the Adams Memorial. It was placed by Marion's grave in Rock Creek Cemetery in Washington, D.C. The figure was of a seated woman, shrouded and draped in cloth, Mm -hmm. with a somber expression on her face, 
closed eyes, one hand raised to rest underneath her chin. Sounds familiar. Right. Because of both the status of the sculptor and of Henry and Marion Adams, and because of the genuine feelings that the statue evoked in people, what was intended to be a depiction of the gloom and grief and mystery surrounding Marion's untimely death became somewhat of a tourist attraction. This was not the intended purpose for the statue, obviously, so plenty of efforts were made to hide the statue from public viewing. One concern held by the sculptor specifically was that the statue could potentially get copied. Mm. He refused any and all requests from people who wanted to duplicate his work. This was meant to be a one-of-a-kind piece of a one-of-a-kind woman. Yeah. The hunch that someone would swoop in and try and copy it anyways was justified because a sculptor named Edward Ludwig Albert Pausch would do just that shortly before Augustus St. Godin died in 1907. Oh, wow. Some 35 miles away from the Adams Memorial site in Baltimore was a man by the name of Felix Agnes. He was a Civil War veteran and newspaper publisher who either saw or heard about the replica of the famous Adams Memorial statue, so he bought it from Pausch and installed the replica statue at his family plot in Druid Ridge Cemetery. Hmm. When the widow of St. Godin got wind of this, she was obviously furious and threatened Agnes with legal action if he didn't have the statue removed since, hello, this is a giant ripoff of one of the most celebrated sculptures at the time. Right. Since nothing could really be done from a legal standpoint, St. Godin's widow traveled to Baltimore to see the statue and to talk to Agnes in person. She was not happy with what she saw. The statue had not only been ripped off, but sculpted from a much cheaper stone after Pausch unlawfully took casts of the original piece. Oh, wow. She allegedly said to Henry Adams, must be a good deal of a barbarian to copy a work of art in such a way. Speaking of Pausch. Burn. Yes. Not not great. So she, there's a sanctity to art. Yeah. And she definitely... Even after her husband passed, she was right by his side. So there was some back and forth between the two. But at the end of the day, Agnes decided that he was going to keep the statue for his family plot. (laughs) Years went by, and by 1925, many members of the Agnes family had died, including Felix himself. And there she sat, the replica statue placed on a carved pedestal with the name Agnes engraved on it. And that's where the legend begins to get dark. (laughs) You don't get a name like Black Aggie for nothing. It's choose, <laughs> choose your own adventure on the origin story of her alleged curse. But she quickly gained notoriety in the area. And by the 1950s and 60s, the stories of Black Aggie and the havoc she wrought were a staple point of conversation in the area. Hmm. First, it said that the grass never grew in Black Aggie's shadow. Visiting her in the daytime was usually harmless, but if you were foolish enough to pay her a visit at night, misfortune and death were the name of the game. It's this that earned her her nickname. It's said that all of the unsettled spirits in the graveyard would gather around her at night at exactly midnight, and her eyes would glow red. If you looked into them, you would go blind for the rest of your life. Oh, wow. If you so much as took a seat on her lap or slept near her for the night, you would die. If you insulted her, you would die. Hmm. People have sworn up and down that whenever they manage to evade any groundskeepers at night, that the one friend who slapped the statue or said something insulting would end up dead in a bizarre accident in just a matter of time. Wow. In 1962, a groundskeeper discovered that someone had stolen Black Aggie's arm. 
What? Just her arm. It was found later in the trunk of a man's car who claimed that when he went to visit her, Black Aggie cut off her own arm in a fit of grief and made him take it. The courts didn't believe him, so he got jail time. But for those who believed in Black Aggie and whatever power she possessed, this was just another affirmation that she was, in fact, cursed. Wow. After the urban legend had been alive and well and active for many years, the Agnes family had had enough. With frequent visitors and many of those visitors being teenagers bent on spooking each other with very little regard for the fact that they were in an actual cemetery where actual people were buried, (laughs) the vandalism and trampled grass and all of that sort of stuff became too much for the groundskeepers and for the Agnes family. Hmm. They donated the statue to the Smithsonian Institute, but curators didn't want to display the statue either because of the fact that it was a knockoff. Mm. So it was that... Or they wanted to protect the general public from the curse that so many people claimed was attached to it. Hmm. Instead, they tossed Black Aggie into the basement of the museum, where it stayed, collecting mold and dust in the basement. Oh, wow. Three years later, the Smithsonian received an authorized and actually legal casting of the original Adam's Grief statue, which it proudly displayed as the Black Aggie remained hidden from the public. In 1987, Hmm. the General Services Administration actually asked if they could have the statue, which they intended to use as a garden gnome. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is where it gets a little weird. So the statue was installed in the courtyard of the Howard T. Markey National Courts Building on Lafayette Square. You can visit the statue today if you find yourself in Washington, D.C., around the corner from the White House. Hmm. A mere 500 feet or so away from the site where Marion Clover Adams had killed herself, the event that would be the whole catalyst for the controversy of the Black Aggie to begin with. Many say oh. that if you visit the Hay Adams Hotel at this location, you might even see a glimpse of Marion Clover Adams for yourself. Ooh. That's, that's the spooky. Black Aggie. Wow. Isn't that weird? That is weird. There's like a thousand different reasons why people think it was cursed, kind yeah. of like beginning with the, you know, uh, essential, like the plagiarism (laughs) of it. Um, And, you know, the death of the original sculptor. There's Mm -hmm. people have all sorts, or a witch came into the graveyard and was real mad about it. Yeah. You know. Is there... uh, But either way. Is there any modern um, lore about if you go visit the statue at night, if if you say something, like with how there was in the graveyard, um, is there a difference between that and today? Or is it kind of like no one ever like says anything about that happening today at all because it's I, had, I didn't place. see like a ton of things about it i saw that some people did like swear up and down her eyes glowed red hmm. um other people suffered medical emergencies yeah. uh, of different kinds when they passed through her shadow or they blamed passing through her shadow hmm. as the reason why they suffered a medical incident yeah. within a few days or hours whatever small measurement of time after Visiting her and passing through her shadow. Mm-hmm. So, and that's even still t- still true since being moved to where she's currently at. I I think so. I okay. didn't write anything down besides the fact that it's very fascinating that she's five hundred feet away yeah, yeah. from the woman who inspired her to be inspired to be made. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of a mind trip. <laughs> it is. It is. So, all right, you want to move on to the next one? Let's let's hear the next one. <clears throat> okay, so the next one is odd. Considering the world of archaeology, up until somewhere in the 18th century, most expeditions were made mostly for the gain of the individual, and less for the purpose of studying and preserving ancient history. Luckily, or I guess unluckily in this particular story, when this artifact was discovered, 
great care was taken to keep it intact regardless of what curses may have been unearthed with it. So most date this discovery back to 1878 in the village of Lem, Cyprus. A very peculiar statue made of pure limestone, the women of Lem, also referred to as the goddess of death, was found. Initially believed to be an ancient fertility relic, researchers dated this piece back to 3500 BC, somewhere in the middle to late Calolithic period. If I said that right, someone will, or wrong, someone will correct me. (laughs) That's fine. So one notable thing about the form of the statue is that when it was compared to other relics from Cyprus that are from a similar era, it stands somewhat cruciform at the top Hmm. with short arm-like limbs protruding on each side. This was common for relics made here. The difference was that it was carved with notably wider and curvier hips, which is why the assumption is that it was made for some unknown fertility goddess. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. I'll I'll share a picture of it so you can get like the full visual. Yeah. So fun fact, since 1976, hundreds of distinctly female relics have been recovered in the village of Lem, which is believed to be the oldest village in Cyprus. Interestingly, as far as I could find, nobody has been able to trace which culture this relic was tied to, but idols made to fertility goddesses to bless the crops and protect the births of people have been made all over the world. So initially, nobody thought much of it until people started dying. Oh. The first person to acquire the piece was a man named Lord Elfont, who was believed to have had access to it because Cyprus was a British colony at the time of its discovery. Hmm. So within six years of acquiring the artifact, Lord Elfont and all seven of his family members had died in accidents or from disease. Hmm. Yeah. The next owner, Ivor Minucci, once again, pronunciations, uh, he obtained the artifact somewhere in Europe and he suffered a similar fate. Within four years, his whole family was also dead. The next owner, Lord Thompson Knoll and his family would all die within four years of the statue coming into their ownership. Oh my gosh. Yeah. For years, nobody had a record of where the statue was, but at some point, it came into the ownership of a man named Sir Alan Biverbrook, which is fun to say. It is fun to say. Within a short time, he, his wife, and his two daughters would all die mysteriously, but his two sons would, for some unknown reason, escape this fate and would donate it to the Royal Scottish Museum in Edinburgh. Oddly enough, it's reported that the two museum curators who handled the statue also died within a year of the statue coming into the museum. As far as I know, there it still sits underneath a wall of glass, untouched by human hands. Wow. Since it's been untouched, there have been no reported deaths. Hmm. So I don't want to ruin the insanity of the story, but I found a super thorough breakdown of the relic, its discovery and relevant studies done around it. And for items like it, and whoever wrote this piece did a super good job, I'll make sure to tag it. They made the point that they scoured over records to try and accurately kind of map out the timeframes of when the artifact was discovered, who discovered it. And they also attempted to verify all the names of the people who reportedly owned it and then died. Mm -hmm. But they weren't able to find any of those names. Oh, interesting. This doesn't necessarily mean that the stories aren't true. It's just hard to verify the actual shenanigans took place right. with like the rampant deaths and all that kind of stuff without an actual traceable record. Yeah. So, yeah, either way, it, that is one historical statue that I'm okay with never coming into any sort of contact with. <laughs> High five it in the museum Hi. at some point. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> I was like, As you were. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay. 
that's that's it for the women of Lem. Wow. Yeah. Fertility goddess taking people's lives. I feel like I've seen a horror movie. I don't know what she's up to. Like, <laughs> I feel like I've doing? seen a horror movie where that's kind of the premise is it's a fertility goddess, which typically means, you know, like a life prosperity is, is happening. Prosperity. Yeah. And instead she's like wicked and evil. And I'm trying to remember what it is. Maybe I'm mixing mm. up a couple of different movies or something, but it's an interesting premise. Like in a, a twisted a version of a fertility goddess yeah. idea. Yeah, basically. Hmm. It'll come, if it exists, it will come to me at four in the morning. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's the only way it works. Yeah, naturally. Okay, so the next story I have for you is the story of the Balleroy chair. It's hard to know exactly where to begin with this weird tale, so I'm just going to start with the origin story that's been told about where the chair itself was made. So sometime back in the 18th or 19th century, Brace yourself for this sentence. Okay. An evil warlock made the chair. Nice. (laughs) Nobody knows why he made it or what curse he may have imparted on the chair, but that's pretty much the whole story. The legend goes that Napoleon himself had once owned the chair, and then at some point it was installed in the Balleroy Mansion in Philadelphia. Hmm. So we haven't talked about the Balleroy Mansion but maybe we should cover the whole story at some point because it is pretty wild. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to do my best to give you like a condensed version focusing mainly on the chair. Yeah. So Balleroy Mansion sits in the affluent Chestnut Hill neighborhood in Philadelphia. It was constructed in 1911 and boasts 32 rooms. Woo. While it's been described as bland from the outside, the inside is full of whimsy and excitement of all kinds. Hmm. According to the lore of the mansion, The first owner of the home was a construction worker who was said to have murdered his wife inside. Ooh, spooky. In 1926, the home was bought by a new family, Major May Stevenson and his wife, Henrietta Easby Stevenson, along with their two sons, George and Stephen. So the reason that we have the information that we have about the mansion and about the chair is because of George. But I'll talk more about that later. Okay. So pretty shortly after moving in, the Easby family began filling their large home with collectibles and antiques, especially with antiques that were known for passing through the hands of people who were rich and or powerful in some way, Hmm. which I feel like is always a bad idea. (laughs) You don't want you don't want Napoleon's chair. You really don't. Right. So they they really loved artifacts and antiques from France, even naming their home after a place in France called Balleroy, which I thought was a cool piece of trivia. Yeah. And if we happen to have any listeners in France and I pronounce that wrong, you can let me know. Thank you for all of your hard work and help in correcting us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll always I'll always take correction. I don't want to be yeah. wrong. So shortly after the family moved in, the boys were playing in the courtyard near a fountain where they were just you know, being kids, they were giggling at how funny their reflections looked when suddenly Stephen's face morphed and took on the appearance of a skull while George's remained the same. Hmm. Stephen would die a short few years later from an undetermined childhood disease. Oh, as far as ghost stories go, there are too many to share here, but I can list a few and then we'll move on to the chair. Okay. So George was the one who first claimed to see the ghost of the woman who was murdered by her husband in the house. There were ghostly phantom arms that would grab George in his sleep. Mm. Ghost cars that would pull up to the house and then disappear. The doors to the cabinets in the kitchen would open and close, apparently by themselves. A woman dressed in all black would appear in the house, and most famously was the woman attached to the Balleroy chair. 
being collectors when the Easbys heard about the beautiful blue upholstered wingback chair that was once owned by Napoleon, they were quick to purchase it and place it in a room in their home that they called the Blue Room that was sort of styled to resemble an 18th century drawing room. Hmm. So according to George, a spirit named either Amanda or Amelia would appear in a red mist and beckon people to come and sit in the chair. I can't think of a ghost that appears in a red mist that I would listen to, but I especially wouldn't listen to this one. As the legend goes, anyone who would listen to the ghost and sit in the chair would die, earning this chair its nickname, the chair of death. Ah, oof. The first death reported to have been caused by the chair was when a member of the house staff collapsed into the chair out of exhaustion and then was dead within a few hours. Oh, wow. I couldn't find a name on this one, but yikes. Yeah. The next death was reported to be one of George's cousins, actually. It sounds like it was the same deal. He was tired. He sat down in the chair. He died shortly after. I couldn't find his name either, but that's what George says happened. And I believe George. It's a believable guy. (laughs) The final recorded death was a member of the house staff and a sort of curator of the items that came into the home for display. A man named Paul Kimmins. So Kimmins was a skeptic when he was first hired on until he claimed that he had seen Amanda slash Amelia for himself while giving a psychic a tour of the home. After his first sighting, he told other house staff, and I think George also, that he would see her everywhere, including at his own house while he was, you know, going for a walk on the street in his car. Oh, like with him in his car. Like it followed him around. Yes. He saw her everywhere. After experiencing this for some time, he began slowing down and needing to take more regular breaks, one of which would be what many believed to be a fatal error. One day, after he'd been stressed and exhausted about being followed around by Amanda slash Amelia, he took a seat in the chair of death. And within a month, he was dead. Wow. Yeah. One interesting thing about the particular people that had apparently died after sitting in the chair is that all of them were somewhat outspoken skeptics about the paranormal. Hmm. They did not buy that there was a ghost in every room of the house or protoplasm leaking from the walls, as George and other staff members had mentioned. Hmm. (laughs) Just some casual protoplasm. It's no big deal. I told you this house is super weird. Some of the stories coming out of there. Yeah. So George had the chair roped off and made it as a display only as the house's reputation spread and became sort of interesting to the public. Mm. As time went on, more members of the Easby family passed until George was the only one who remained. He claimed that he would see his mother and his brother Stephen pretty regularly around the home. And he was really the one responsible for keeping the sort of magic about the home alive. He focused his efforts in many different directions, from producing and acting in low-budget films to opening his home for tours for a while. He Mm. had no children, so when he passed away, the estate was open to the public for tours again. Eventually, the many unique antiques were donated to museums or sold, including the house itself. It's now a private residence, so don't be that guy who shows up to someone's (laughs) house asking to be let in so that you can see a ghost. Yeah. But George did say in an interview in 1984, quote, When I leave here, I'm coming back to haunt them. If they don't take good care of this place, I'm going to be right back there after them, end quote. Wow. So hopefully the current owners are taking good care of the place so George doesn't have to come back to haunt anyone. Yeah, let George rest in peace. Yes. As for the chair, nobody knows where it ended up. 
So if you find a too good to be true deal on a vintage wingback chair, it's best to ask a few questions before taking it home and taking a seat because you never know. Old Amelia might come come waving you in. (laughs) She might come a floating out of a red mist and say, you look tired. Papa squat. Ooh. Want to have a seat in this chair? Look at how comfy it looks. Spoopy. I just want to know like what she says. Is she like, just like scary? Like (laughs) guys. Hey girl. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Come sit in the chair. Or is she like, you know, scary, like sit in the chair. You know, I just want to know. I just want to know. That's what you want to know. You don't want to know anything else about it. You just want to know That's it. I just want to know about the delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I have a few more, but I don't want this to get too long. So I'm just going to do one more story. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to talk about a weird little guy who doled out minor curses on anyone who examined him for some time, which is as weird (laughs) as it sounds. Yeah. This is the story of little Manny with his daddy's horns. That's what he's called. Little Manny with his, with his dad. Wow. Little Manny with his daddy's horns. Yes. That is a, that's a title. That is a name. (laughs) So with a name like that, it's like kind of hard to know where to begin. All right, Manny. Okay. So the author of the Cursed Objects book assumed that the name was given to the artifact to make it seem less spooky and ominous. But I think that the with his daddy's horns makes it like, like more spooky and weird. Yeah. If that makes sense. It's, it's, uh. When you attach something like cutesy to something spooky, it feels weirder and spookier yes. to me. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of a Tim Burton-y kind of like, this is weird and creepy and I'm not totally sure why. Do I hate it or do yeah. I love it? Yeah. <laughs> so as the story goes, back in the 1960s in Hollingworth, England, a cleaning lady by the name of Lucy Healy was hard at work washing the basement floors of the Conservative Club, which is a 17th century building in Hollingworth. While she was doing this, she accidentally uncovered a small stone. When she looked at it more closely, she could tell that it wasn't just a regular old stone, but it was definitely a carving of some kind. The little figure was roughly three inches tall and looked very much like a little bald man with an oversized head, a heavy brow and nostrils, and little protrusions meant to represent arms or wings. It had no legs, and from the side, when you would turn it, it had little protrusions on the side of its head that looked like little horns, which is likely what earned him his full name. Yeah. He also had once been painted a green color, but the paint had sort of washed off, most likely by Lucy's really good job she'd been doing while she was cleaning the floors. <laughs> For whatever reason, Lucy liked the little figure and decided to keep it. Once word got out around town that a cleaning lady had found what could potentially be a unique artifact— In the basement of the conservative club, some people began to take a special interest in it. A local history professor named Tony Ward and a friend of his, who was sort of an amateur excavator, decided to do a small-scale dig where little Manny had been found. What they found was what they described as a ritualistic arrangement of artifacts. There were candles in a circular formation around chicken and rabbit bones. Oh, wow. Ivory billiard counters, which are like used to keep score in a game of pool. Yeah. And a statue of a large figure that appeared to be almost motherly. They believe it was set up as what's called a foundation sacrifice, Hmm. which many cultures have used in various ways throughout history as a form of blessing a house. Hmm. Okay. So with this discovery, little Manny's fame grew in the area. Little Manny is just on the rise. In 1974, a man named, this is how it was written online, A.J.N.W. Prague or John Prague. Wow. Some refer to as both, so I'll refer to him as both. 
John Prague, who worked at the Manchester Museum, was putting together a collection of Celtic heads for exhibition. Celtic heads are small stone faces with simple facial features carved into them, and apparently they pop up all the time in areas where Celts once lived in Europe, hmm. especially in the UK. Interesting. So yeah. kind of like Stonehenge, but uh, not Stonehenge, kind of like Easter Island, kind of those big head figures, but like smaller kind of things. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. I can share pictures of them too, so you can get a better visual. And it's kind of like, from what I understand, it's kind of like finding shark's teeth on the beach. Hmm. You know, like you can find them pretty regularly. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, since the region where little Manny was found was a place where Celtic heads had popped up before Prague was immediately interested in it, believing that this may be another Celtic figurine made to represent the God Sir Nunos. Hmm the Lord of Animals, who is also regularly depicted with horns. He tried to buy little Manny from Lucy for years until she finally accepted his offer in the 1980s. Wow. I believe it was 1987. Shortly after little Manny made his journey to the Manchester Museum, staff from the museum began to experience what Ocker called, quote, minor misfortunes. Oh. Which I love how he phrased that. Yeah. But, yeah. So, what types of minor misfortunes? Yeah. Well, the photographer who had taken the initial photos of little Manny dinged his car two nights in a row after 18 years with a perfect driving record. That was one. <laughs> That's a minor inconvenience. It's a minor yeah. misfortune, right? Minor misfortune, yeah. A staff member broke his thumb after sort of like scoffing or mocking little Manny. <laughs> broke his thumb. An exhibit worker cut his head open. Oh. Yeah, that one's a little more a little than more minor. major. Yeah. He's fine. It's like a cut. Oh, okay. Um, and so little Manny became less appealing to many members of the staff who were not interested in bad luck or minor injuries. <laughs> so, so much so that the geologist who worked at the museum didn't want to examine the stone at all to try and identify what it was carved from. Yeah. So Pat Ellison, uh, I mentioned before, she was actually the one who was there to help excavate the site at the conservative club. So she came in to see little Manny for herself. Hmm. She thought maybe she could quell the mischief by sort of gently rocking little Manny in mm -hmm. her lap and tying a piece of her own hair around it. Interesting. A little bit yeah. voodoo-y. Yeah. I feel like I wouldn't. I wouldn't give a mischievous stone my hair for right. under like really any circumstance, but yeah. I mean, that's just me. But the mischief didn't stop there. One night, John Prague took little Manny to his home the evening before he planned to head to London. Prague wanted to show Manny to a materials expert who would likely be able to identify what he was made out of and sort of narrow down his origins a little bit. Hmm. So when he did that the same night, someone broke into his car by smashing out a window. Oh. The next morning, while he was on his train on the way to London, the zipper to his pants broke, so he had to <laughs> pin them shut with a safety pin. So, like, minor misfortunes, minor misfortunes. all over town. Yeah. So, somehow, word got out about this, and a news story was featured in The Sun, which I've talked oh about gosh. before, yeah. and we'll probably talk about again, because yeah. The Sun has its own reputation, you know, for a reason. Yeah. Anyways, the long and short of it is that little Manny was blamed for putting a small curse on Prague, thusly giving him an explanation for the ripped pants. Yeah. The whole gist of the article was, little Manny did it, it's a small curse. <laughs> little Manny with a small curses and his daddy's <laughs> horns. Yeah. So, in 1991, an interesting discovery was made. An expert in African artifacts observed little Manny and informed staff at the museum that this was, without a doubt, not a Celtic artifact, but a Nimoli oh. statue from Sierra Leone in West Africa. 
Oh, wow. Interesting, right? So he was certain that this figure was made by an unnamed civilization whose history and lore is mostly lost to time. It's a lot of confidence uh, about a culture that's mostly lost to time, but very confident that it's to a culture. Like, I don't, from from what I've gathered about it, he knows that there are, there were cultures that kind of blended due to some like different migration that was happening Mm -hmm. in different time periods. Yeah. And... There was there's specific artifacts that come are, from that are obviously from one people group. Yeah, that's been unidentified. Interesting. Yeah, it was also determined that little Manny was carved from felsite, which is common in both England and in Western Africa. So figurines like little Manny could be regularly discovered in caves or underground in the Sierra Leone area. So the Mende people actually use these artifacts today. The Mende people are a group who made a slow and peaceful journey from Liberia and into Sierra Leone sometime in the 18th century. They believe that these figures protect their home and crops, and it's common for them to actually bury the figures as a sort of good luck charm, which sound a little bit familiar. Yeah, it's a lot like the... The The conservative club. uh Mm Mm-hmm. So could it be that unearthing little Manny undid the good luck and fortune of the house, Or maybe that he was just casually putting small curses on anyone who came into contact with him because he was unearthed. Hmm. I mean, maybe. Yeah. As to why and how it got there, especially if it was from West Africa, nobody really knows. Yeah. There are tons of theories, especially given the other artifacts that were discovered in the basement that were being sort of like, you know, ritualistically arranged. Yeah. But we will likely never get the answers to these things. Hmm. Today, you can go visit Little Manny, where he sits in a drawer in the Discovery Center of the Manchester Museum, still with Pat Ellison's hair wrapped around him. Wow. But be careful, since we know this little guy has a penchant for mischief. And that's what I have for you for our first ever spooky season celebratory bonus episode. Wow. I I think it's been really fun. Cursed objects. I didn't, I I, I guess I didn't realize that there are so many. There's a ton. Yeah. Like... I, I, I think about the, uh, the really common, really popular stories of dolls and, Oh, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Fear sure. Not. I'm sure. Well, then I I've also got those coming. I think about what's it called in Ireland? The, the Blarney stone, right? Is that the one that you, people you sit backward and kiss or something like that? Lie on their backs and everybody kisses it. It's super weird and kind of a health concern i would imagine but <laughs> but in the post-covid world the blarney stone wouldn't make a lot of sense yeah i don't know uh, that's one that i have not looked yeah. into but that'd be the opposite technically is that it's supposed to be like good luck a blessing yeah or, or good luck or something like that yeah it's very yeah, odd. I, I saw on different sites that i was looking at that people would argue that something's not necessarily cursed because then that kind of like narrows the scope mm-hmm. quite a bit instead things can be charmed or enchanted and whether oh, it's yeah. a good enchantment or a bad one yeah. depends on the culture and depends on whatever the circumstances are. Yeah. And I, th- I think when I was first starting looking into this, I really assumed that these would be like kind of what you see in the movies. Like I would read about these objects and mm-hmm. be like, Oh my gosh, this is like, take your breath away. Almost jump scare, mm-hmm. scary. Um, and it ended up, it ends up being a lot more, you know, real life. Yeah. Kind of. It makes them more believable. Like the Black Aggie is less believable to me than Little Manny. Right. Yeah, because the Black Aggie has all of the lore of 
a scary movie. Yeah, exactly. And, and little Manny is (laughs) more poltergeisty and just kind of like, like, like it's pulling pranks on people, but that no one else really thinks is funny except for it. (laughs) Maybe he's Irish. Maybe he's a little leprechaun. A little, maybe. Well, except for he's West African. Who knows? Who knows? But yeah, I have all kinds of cursed object stories that I would be happy to tell if people were entertained by this one. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to more bonus episodes with maybe some more cursed objects, maybe some more spooky, fun. I mean, we might have haunted houses. Ooh, yeah. We might have a famous witch, some famous dolls. So stay tuned is what you're really saying. What I'm saying is there's a lot and they're going to be awesome. So stay tuned. Okay. Well, with that, thank you for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. I'm just going to say stories. That's true. This is multiple stories about multiple figures, multiple objects. And uh, honestly, I'm not unsavored at all. This was more fun than anything else. Yeah. And uh, lighthearted curses for you. Yeah. So I'll say unsettled. (laughs) Yeah. Lighthearted curses. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm uh, not, no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm maybe a little bit unsettled and, uh, but in like a fun way, like how you go to a haunted house or watch a scary movie unsettled and uh, definitely less unusual than I thought it was. Yeah. Now that I'm hearing about all these things, it seems less unusual. So, if you have an opinion about that, please let us know in the comments of uh, our Instagram post or Facebook post or what have you. And uh, while you're there, make sure that you follow us on all of the social media platforms, uh, especially whichever one you use the most. You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at this one is a doozy and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. You can also send us your recommendations um, for other stories or personal stories on uh, email via email at this one is a doozy at gmail.com. And uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure that you are subscribed and leave a glowing five star review so that everybody can see how much you enjoy listening to this one's a doozy. With that, we'll see you next time later this week, probably. Yep, in a few days. Yeah, for another doozy. Thanks. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.